Why is the name of Jesus a swear word? Have you ever thought about this? The names of other kind of religious leaders don't get used in this way, it doesn't seem to me, but the name of Jesus is very casually used as a swear word. My wife and I noticed this last week. We were watching Top Gear, and uh, it was quite amazing. Matt LeBlanc, at one point, uh, he was bleeped out when he seemed to uh, making a colloquial reference to excrement. But they didn't bleep him out when he used the name of Jesus as an expletive. And I thought that was really interesting. The TV producers clearly don't think it's offensive to use Jesus as a swear word. Or less offensive than the other thing, which I find quite extraordinary. Now, why is it that people use the name of Jesus in that way? And, and why is it when we use the name of Jesus reverently... You can see some people really start to squirm. It's a very awkward point if you start speaking positively or reverently using the name of Jesus in polite conversation. Why does Jesus cause such a reaction? Is Jesus somebody that we should, uh, we should mock or admire? Uh, should we treat him like rubbish or, or take him seriously? I think without even really thinking about it, people are still offering their verdict about Jesus today. Now please open your Bibles to uh, page 998 in the Church Bibles. Uh, and turn to Matthew chapter 27 if you've got a Bible on your phone or an app or something like that. Matthew chapter 27. Because once again we're going to see Jesus on trial I'm going to read the first two verses of chapter 27 and I'm going to jump to verse 11 because we considered the verses in between last week. Matthew chapter 27 verse 1. Early in the morning all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away and handed him over to Pilate the governor. Verse 11. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message, Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. 
But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered. Crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them. But he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Well, please keep your Bibles open. This is the second trial. Jesus has already stood before the Jewish authorities in the middle of the night. And uh, the record says that they struggle to find evidence against him. If you turn back a page uh, to look at chapter 26 and verse um, 63. The high priest in the end has to come and ask him directly. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest took, tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. Now this really is the biting point, isn't it? Uh, the high priest understood that Jesus is not only claiming to be the Messiah, but to be co-equal with God. And clearly, this is a claim that demands a response. Is Jesus who he confessed to be? Uh, this is the matter that causes offense and challenge. This is why Jesus divides people's opinions. This is why he causes some to swear and others to squirm. Because he is claiming to be much more than a miracle worker, a great moral teacher, a prophet. It is a claim to be God. And it is his claim to have, as God, authority over all of our lives. That he has the right to tell us how to live our lives. He has the right that we should uh, listen to him, obey him, follow him, worship him. And of course, if this really is God come in human flesh, then that changes everything, doesn't it? Because that means that this is not just uh, a thing that's interesting to people who like uh, looking at ancient books or have an interest in first century history. This, this changes everything if Jesus is who he claims to be. So what is your verdict on Jesus? Who do you say he is? At this point in Matthew's account, 
it looks like all the world is rejecting Jesus. The verdict of the Jewish leaders is there in verse 66 of chapter 26. He is worthy of death. His claim to be Messiah, rejected. His claim to be co-equal with God, rejected. His, um, in, in their estimation, Jesus deserved death. And now Matthew turns to Jesus on trial before the Gentile authorities. The Jewish leaders, as subjects of the Roman Empire, knew that they didn't have the right to put people to death. Only Rome could decide that. And so it requires this second trial where he's brought before the Roman governor of Pilate uh, to try and get the death sentence carried out. And so we've got this second stage. And they know, of course, that, uh, that Pilate will not be interested in their theological um, problems. And so they present it to him in such a way that uh, that would cause Rome to be worried. And it's hinted at by the fact that uh, Pilate asks this first question um, in 27 verse 11. Are you the king of the Jews? And perhaps there's a bit of mockery in this question. He sees a prisoner beaten up, clearly no army standing at the gates of Jerusalem. Uh, a guy who just seems apparently powerless. Are you the king of the Jews? You can almost see him smirking. Now the response of Jesus, again, seems a bit enigmatic. You have said so. Now why, why is he cautious in the way that he affirms and gives assent? And I think the answer is this, because he is a king, but not a king in the way that Pilate thinks of a king. Pilate's concern is a Jerusalem that is full of people. There's hundreds of thousands of additional people pouring into Jerusalem, confined within the walls at this time of Passover. This is a rich seam for revolt. He knows as the, as the governor that he's not loved in this realm. Others have tried to stir up revolt and insurrection. That's why Barabbas is in the prison cell because earlier he had had a failed attempt to start a, 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 an uprising which had involved with mayhem, mayhem and murder and that's why he's in uh, the prison. And so I think Jesus doesn't want to uh, assume all that he understands by being the king of the Jews. John's gospel goes further into the dialogue that they had where Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. As an aside, Christianity is not a threat to civic society. Uh, all we ask for is freedom of speech and freedom of conscience and Christians will be a great blessing in any nation that they're a part of, whether it's democratic government or not. Now Jesus is not leading some insurrection uh, against Rome. He's not trying to usurp uh, Pilate. But if Jesus doesn't agree with the way Pilate might have viewed kingship, when it comes to the Old Testament, Jesus is exactly who 
he's being asked. He is the king of Israel. He is the king of the Jews. And so he answers, you've said so. And then the Jewish uh, leaders, they start firing their accusations before Pilate at Jesus. And again, Matthew uh, fills in a little bit of... uh, uh, Matthew doesn't record everything. Luke throws in a bit more information when he says this, that uh, during this part of the trial, they, they say some things like this. We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Messiah, a king. Well, you, you, know, you know how to upset authorities when they're, saying, they're telling them not to pay taxes. That's how you get the authorities worried, isn't it? Even though we don't really have a record of Jesus ever saying that. But what amazed Pilate was that Jesus refused to defend himself against all these allegations. I'm sure he's had many other prisoners stand before him. And when the issue is actually are they going to be killed, they're normally very quick to defend themselves and get aggressive. But Jesus did not open his mouth. Pilate is amazed. And it seems to be the turning point, doesn't it, where Pilate decides that Jesus doesn't deserve the death sentence. Matthew's unique in sharing amongst the gospel writers of how Pilate's wife might have played a part in him deciding to take this uh, direction. She'd had some disturbing dreams that convinced her that Jesus was an innocent man. And so she, she takes time to, to get the message to Pilate not to play a part in his demise. And then Matthew records a number of attempts to free this innocent man. The Roman governor had some sort of um, uh, prisoner amnesty release program that happened on religious days. And so Pilate tries to go over the heads of the religious leaders and and, uh, to go to the crowds and to offer them either the release of Jesus Barabbas or Jesus the one they call the Messiah. He sensed that they're bringing this man to him was really a ruse just to use him to uh, bring about the death sentence that they were envious in some way that they were just using him for their own uh, motivation and perhaps he calculated well surely the crowds will go for an innocent man rather than a murderer but he calculated wrong incredibly the crowd turned into a hostile mob they are persuaded by the religious leaders and instead they call out for Barabbas to be freed. And then we get two further attempts of Pilate trying to free Jesus as he appeals to the crowd. Verse 22, what shall I do then with Jesus who is called the Messiah? They answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Consider this injustice. He's found blameless before the Jewish authorities, he's found innocent before Pilate. And yet, verse 24, when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It's your responsibility. And the people uh, took that responsibility. His blood is on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them. But... He had Jesus flogged. It's a strange way to behave to an innocent man, isn't it? But he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The flogging alone could have killed some people. A 
a, a whip with multiple strands with bits of bone and metal in it so that when they whipped, it just ripped the flesh off people's backs. And that's what he orders. Have him scourged and then crucified. Now what's going on here? There's lots of different motivations, but I think Matthew wants to make a theological point. And it is this, all the world is rejecting God's king. The Jewish leaders, the crowd, the Gentiles, they take someone who's lived a, a blameless, beautiful life that has helped others, and they crucify him because they all reject his claims to be Lord over their lives. And I think this is a very profound and deep truth, actually, that is still true of us today. There's something in us where we actually do reject God's loving rule over our lives. We all have rebellious hearts, every one of us, that don't want God to tell us how to live our life. We want to do it our way. We want to do what suits us. And actually, um, if someone gets in the way of that, it can get ugly. If someone presses the claims that Jesus is Lord and he does have the right to tell us how to live our lives, then our true sinful response will come out. And if we were in that crowd, we too would cry out, crucify him, away with him. And I think we see that today in the way that his name is used as a swear word. Treat him like rubbish, like nothing at all. When he's reduced to an expletive, that is our verdict. On Jesus. I think that's why people sort of back off a bit when they see his name mentioned reverently by Christians. It's just a little bit awkward, a little bit confronting, because our sinful response is to reject God. There are religious ways of rejecting God, as the uh, Jewish leaders show. There are secular ways of rejecting God, as, as Pilate does, who basically chooses expediency, whatever will make his life and his job easier. Pretend Jesus is not your issue. I don't have to think about this. It's not my problem. It's your responsibility. But in all this rejection, Matthew wants us to see that God is still graciously at work. Because secondly, we see here God's plan to save rebel sinners. This is so encouraging. Uh, he, he does this by, um, in a, at least a couple of ways. There's a word in the original language that's translated in the English in different ways. It's the word that we get translated here, handing over, delivered, betrayed. So we read in chapter 27, verse 2, that um, the religious leaders handed him over delivered him up to Pilate. And verse 3, that Judas, who had delivered him, betrayed him, is how they've translated it in the English there, but delivered him over. And this word reminds us of the many times Jesus predicted that these things would happen. If you keep your finger in chapter 27 and turn back to chapter 20, page 988 in the church Bibles, chapter 20 and verse 17, 
page 988 in the church Bibles. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the 12, his 12 disciples aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will deliver him over, hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. So come back to Matthew chapter 27. That little word just reminds us that this is actually, this is all something they knew was going to happen. This was God's plan of salvation. Jesus knew exactly what would happen as he goes to Jerusalem. This is, in a sense, why he doesn't really attempt to uh, prove his innocence. He's not doing anything to stop what must happen according to God's salvation plan. He must be flogged and crucified and die because he has come to save rebel sinners. Here is his incredible meekness and his incredible love that he endures all of this hostility to save unworthy rebels like you and like me. And it's there in picture form in chapter 27 as we look at the story of Barabbas. Can you picture him in prison? He's awaiting his death sentence. Does he deserve his death sentence? Well, in Rome at the time, yes, he does. He's a rebel. He's an insurrectionist. He's a murderer. These are capital offenses. He's guilty. He's deserving of death. Can you see him? He's shuddering in his cell. He hears the footsteps of the guards. He knows what's coming. There's no more appeals. There's no doubt. None of his friends have tried to spring him out. There's no way out. And the cell doors open. And to his great shock, they say to him, You are free to go, Barabbas. How? Why? Is this possible? Oh, there's another man called Jesus who's taking your place on the cross. Wow. There in the events is the spiritual reality of why Jesus meekly goes to the cross. He has come to save rebel sinners. This is what the death of Jesus accomplishes. Uh, Peter, one of the disciples, puts it this way and as he writes his first letter to, to Christian churches. For Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous, he was righteous. For the unrighteous, that's, that's you and me. He came to suffer for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. This is why he came. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in, in the book of Romans. For God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is great news. Do you have to kind of brush yourself up, make yourself look good for God to accept you? No, you can't do it. We've all failed in the past. We've all had different ways where we've sinned and rebelled against God. We are rebel sinners. 
And yet in his amazing grace, he comes to rescue and save rebel sinners. Standing in our place. Swapping places with us so that we can receive forgiveness and pardon. It's amazing. And so what is your response to this Jesus? What's your verdict on him? Do you see today that he is in fact the Messiah promised in the scriptures? That he is the son of God. That he did live that blameless, sinless life. That he did go to that cross as a substitute for sinners. To bring you to God. Do you see that? Have you responded to him? Have you acknowledged before God that you are a sinner? Have you come and asked for forgiveness? Have you come and asked him to change you? So you can live with Jesus in charge. Uh, in, in the bulletin, there's a, there's a prayer. We've been printing it for a number of months now. Can you, why don't you pull it out and have a look at it? It's a prayer that you could use to get right with God if you've never done this. It, it basically says... I know I'm not worthy to be accepted by you. It takes a certain humility to recognize that. But if you love an honest look at yourself, it's true. I don't deserve your gift of eternal life. I'm guilty of rebelling against you and ignoring you. I need forgiveness. Thank you for sending your son to die for me that I may be forgiven. Thank you that he rose from the dead to give me new life. Please forgive me and change me. I live with Jesus as my ruler. Now that's a simple prayer that you could use today to get right with God. He has made full provision to cover all our rebellion and sin. But yet you must still take hold of it to make it yours. It's not automatic. If you haven't done that, why don't you do it today? Before you leave this morning. Full disclosure, um, to identify with the one who's a swear word might mean that you too uh, might be mocked and um, people might find you odd. And there are places in the world that if you go and confess Christ, it might even end up you having your life taken away from you. So it's serious, isn't it? Uh, Jesus warned his disciples as he sends them out, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves, therefore be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you'll be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. Now, truth is, in Britain, you're not going to probably face being flogged before the council. They don't do that sort of thing. You might just get some funny looks from people. But that's enough sometimes to hold us back, which is crazy, really. The Apostle Paul called his young protege, Timothy, to be courageous in the face of opposition. He says to him, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses, in the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Christ Jesus who, while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession, I charge you, 
to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is coming back. It is going to be worth it to stand with him. But will you stand with the despised Jesus today because you know that you are trusting him as your Lord and Savior? Or in the end, will your verdict be like Pilate? Pilate is a pragmatist. He basically liked his position of power and influence. Ironically, he was supposed to be in charge, but in these events, it seems very much as if he's been ruled over by the mob and uh, maneuvered by the, the underlings. He's more ruled by his fear of others and his fear of losing control and authority. And so he attempts to, to wash his hands of any responsibility with regard to Jesus. And I've seen this happen. I've seen people um, come, hear the gospel, be profoundly moved by it, uh, be actually intellectually in agreement that, that this is true. This is capital T truth. It's right. And yet hold back from identifying with Christ because they're frightened of what it might mean for their friendships, for their family, for their work context. This is what Pilate does. He, he attempts to wash his hands, remove his responsibility. I don't have to deal with this Jesus. Did his hand washing remove his responsibility? Not a bit of it. How is Pilate remembered in history? Well, to most people, he's remembered through the Apostles' Creed, which has been recited for hundreds of years. And it says this, Born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. It was Pilate who took the innocent Christ and ordered that he should be scourged and delivered to be crucified. His fear of the crowds meant that he was very happy to order torture and death. Did his wife have a premonition of the horror of this cruelty and the ultimate judgment that would await her husband for so despising Jesus? Our verdict on Jesus will determine our eternal destiny. And the judgment of history will be assessed by a response to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who will return, the Bible says, to judge. So let me ask you as I close, what is your verdict on Jesus? Each of us is making our verdict. Some of you know that it's true and you haven't yet responded. And I want to invite you in a moment to pray this prayer along with me.